Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Today on the Raw Ag podcast I'm talking to Dr Jason Tromp, Lambs Alive. Jason's PhD was into farmer behavioural change and adoptive context. He is one of livestock's leading thinkers and trainers. I think that Jason is such a good trainer because he deeply understands beef and lamb production so that when he's asked one of those difficult questions that seems plausible but has been manifested from anecdotal observation, he can unpack it and put it back together again right and get closure. Welcome to the Raw Egg Podcast, Jason. And whereabouts are you at the moment? Well, that's a story in itself. Uh, Tom, I'm talking to you from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. There aren't very many lambs up there, are there? No, there's not a lot of lambs, not a lot of beef either. But um, we uh, actually relocated the family up here uh, about 12 months ago in, during the COVID uh, exercise, and all the kids are Queensland schooled these days. So right. homesch- homeschooling in the tromps didn't work real well. So uh, by mid-year, we figured when it was all cranking up for the second round, we, uh, we would... Uh, Start start a new beginning. A new life because of COVID. Well, we did, yeah. There's a few other factors as well, but uh, it's it's a good learning curve and I think it's good for, for all us humans and kids to have a crack at a few different things. It's part of what uh, builds your fabric. Yeah, now, um, Jason, you've, uh, many of the listeners will know, have heard of you and, um, and I've definitely been following your track. You're quite a... A influential educator in agriculture and um, tell us a little bit more about Lambs Alive and um, lifetime ewe management. Yeah look um, you know it's nice to say that maybe my name's recognised a bit but uh, really the, the the goal and the mission's about trying to assist more farmers to really you know improve their lot in life and when you ask me to sum up later with a few of you uh you know, things about influences and masterpieces and the terminology you've got. Um, you know, it was probably, probably was my time with my father, really, that I was the last of six kids and a bit of an afterthought. And uh, therefore, I grew up with an old, old man, Tom. Um, but even though he was, he was older, he was always, you know, quite open-minded to new information and very passionate about educating the next generation. And so... That had quite an imprint on me and um, I suppose from there I've sort of gone forward. Obviously, as you know, predominantly worked, even though I have a cattle and sheep background, worked in trying to improve uh, sheep reproduction most recently, but it, it sort of grew up really more in the pasture productivity area was the focus of my PhD research, which was all about farmer behavioural change. Yeah, so that's quite fascinating, isn't it? You, um, you did a PhD in actual farmer behavior um yeah. which uh and and um and you had a pretty good understanding of the the economics of running sheep so the two came together pretty well didn't they 
Yeah, it was sort of the, I, I would even say, you know, just with the, my background understanding and training at Latrobe Agriculture in production systems, um, you know, really led to me going more into both cattle and sheep and, and get really focused on the levers that farmers can pull that make a difference. One of those that you do a lot in, in as a seed stock provider in the area of genetics, but obviously the, the feed base and, and proactive management and mindset of the of the producer is, uh, you know, they're probably three or four of the key components that come together to, to make a difference. And, um, you know, I suppose it's the aggregate of those together to drive, sure, production productivity but and, and ultimately profit, profitability, but to do it in a manner that, that has a really resilient business is that the area of sort of having a business that can flex with varying seasons, varying market opportunities, you know, that's probably an area that I think almost um, congregates a lot of the principles that I'm coaching farmers in. So when you look at it through that lens of needing to be adaptable, uh, I think brings the best out of all of those different components. We've talked a bit about this on Raw Ag, and um, some of those factors, though, are they the real factors that make farmers particularly conservative and um, perhaps a little bit um, cling on to what they know because the variables are so catastrophic sometimes in agriculture. Yeah. That you stick Look, to the things you know. A great example of that even is one of the graphs we have early in the program we looked at in this area of um, climatic variability and, and how farmers can you know, manage around that and still be quite productive is the good old graph that looks at the response of stocking rate to profit. And um, when you sort of look at that and look at it in a new light rather than just as a single line on the graph like you and I grew up with through university, but look at it more when you throw varying seasons at it, the closer you stocked to that optimum, the more volatile the situation is, um, particularly if you don't have um, good tools to, to flex that system. One example being, uh, you know, you might not fill it all up with breeding DSEs, you, you have more of a trading arm so you can mm. flex it quicker, yep. for example, in your enterprise structure. And um, when you look at that graph in the light of your question and look at where the district average is, is uh, more stocked, it actually means that a lot of the time they, they'll still break even or won't have a huge loss in a bad year so it really ties into where you're saying is this is this variability driving inherent conservatism, and I would agree with that, correct? But unfortunately, it's it means that you don't you don't go uh, you don't lose a heap of money in the bad year, but you also don't make too much money the rest of the time. <laughs> so it's plan it's, plan uh, for the good years and not the bad. Do you think? It's, it's a very uh, ultra-conservative approach that means that you miss a lot of opportunities, you know, in in three out of four years. You might cover your butt in that bad year, but, um, you know, and I think what, we, what we're much more interested in is coaching people through those same avenues, you know, genetics, management, feed base, enterprise structure, mindset, on goes the list, to, to work out how to really drive their system to an appropriate level uh, and and be able to flex during those uh, tough times to sort of um, kind of uh, almost 
cope with being in the trenches for that time but, but be able to live to fight another day and be highly productive when the opportunity arises. So, someone, we need to um, find out from you what what our listeners will want to know. What um, what are the next opportunities? You know, really, um, I know that you're you're quite a uh, thinker about uh, philosophically think about how beef and um, lamb can be improved. You know, what's the current state of the herd and flock, and um, what are the big opportunities? Yeah, look, well, I mean, it's easy to talk about them both in the same same phrase, really. I mean, both are at uh, record lows. I think the flock's at something like a 100-year low and not exactly sure, you know, beef-wise. I think it's sort of in the last 25 or 30-year low. Um, you know, it's certainly a generation low turn-off year for beef. And and to be honest, that that's, that's a concern for me. In the beef industry, they talk a lot about the rebuild of the herd. And if you look at how that's engineered on most occasions, it's engineered through extremely low turnoff. And when you're trying to market your product to, you know, the globe, that that tap on, tap on, tap on, tap off sort of approach to your to your product flow is not a good thing for building and maintaining market share. Um, so I think in both industries, we've got to work out how we sustain turnoff and simultaneously rebuild. And and the only way to do both, have your cake and eat it too, is to work on our reproductive efficiency. And uh, I, I reckon we're miles off in both cases. In the sheep industry, where I spend a lot of my time, is uh, we have loads of potential. We conceive lots of fetuses, Tom, but, but we have a challenge converting that into live lambs. You know, it's, it represents about a 30% loss between mid-pregnancy and the landmarking cradle. And uh, and that that loss in itself between there and best practice, which is more like ten or twelve percent loss, that gap is worth a billion dollars in lost profit to the Australian sheep industry per annum, and it's only a, a seven or eight billion dollar industry. So it's a profound opportunity on mm. an annual basis, and clearly in the cattle industry, which you're really passionate about. You know, when a lot of the animals live in the north and, and the average reproduction rates are more like 50% than they are, say, 90%, it's, uh, you know, a, a, a challenge to um, challenge and an opportunity to address that. I think it's the, the things that go into addressing something like that's where it gets interesting. You know, people think that, that uh, reproduction rates and reproductive efficiency is all about management. But there's a, an awesome role that genetics um, play in that as well and, and obviously a profound impact of, you know, feed-based, proactive management of condition score profiles, this sort of stuff. Um, you know, and, and as you've seen in, in your time in the, in the beef world, you can have some highly efficient beef production per hectare driven by the numbers you run, your reproduction rates and how quick they grow. And I think a lot of the time, particularly in beef, we just get too wrapped up in one component. Like there's an in that equation we just outlined, that I see an obsession often with growth rate, and it's only one component. And unfortunately, it's unfavourably related to things like birth weight, mature cow weight, um, can be unfavourably related to finishing ability if you don't balance your maturity pattern of your cattle. You know, so single trait focus, regardless of your species, is is not a good thing. And um, I don't think it leads to productive and resilient 
you know, production system. And you see that in the north, and uh, get into low gear a bit here, you know, the often the best, most valuable bull is the, um, is the first born out of a cow that didn't have a calf the year before. Um, yeah. And those uh, genes go into the into the gene pool of the nation, and they breed offspring that do the same thing. Um, you know, it's often said in the north that uh, we can't have good fertility, we can't have good weaning rates up here because it's tough. You know, the environment's tough. But we now know through research um, that there are cows in herds that have calves every year, and they're often related to other cows that have calves in other herds <laughs> every year. So that's called that's called pedigree yeah so explain that one to us you know that does that you know that's proof Uh, isn't it the genetics are there yeah it does and look you're saying research has proved it i got a real uh insight to this the breadwell fedwell program that we've been very proud it's sort of uh nearly reached five thousand sheep producers and now over 1500 beef producers we did three pilots in the north tom and one of those was at russell lethbridge's property at hewenden which is a long way up into Queensland and, and as we drove there seriously the cows that I saw in the paddock and most of them were a silver colour so you can get what breed they were I, I could barely see over them you better be careful I've got to go to Rocky next week yeah 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 well that's okay I'm not going so that's <laughs> I'm safe but uh, when I got to his place the cows I'm not joking maybe two foot short lower would be an exaggeration but they'd certainly be three frame scores lower and uh, this is a commercial herd, large scale, that has had a really tight breeding objective around reproduction and buying bulls with appropriate days to calving and, and so on. And uh, he's lifted his re- weaning rates from in the 50s up to sort of 86% and can contemplate getting heifers to carve at two-year-old. It is a challenge still in his environment. They've, they've redesigned the animal and, um, and it's a different beast to that one you're talking about. I... You know, I've got to be careful here, but, um, you know, the the beef world is kind of only one step removed from parliament. Um, boys like measuring boys. And uh, they, you got big blokes in big hats, and they think that the key to the beef industry is measuring bulls' weights and bulls' muscle. And uh, in the equation I'm looking at, it's the, the, re- the females are jewel in the crown, mate. So they've got to get focused on measuring the traits that make a difference to breeding the, the cow of the future and that cow of the future has to be way more adaptable and growth rate is only one part of a, a, a detailed equation and we want cows that are robust you can run an appropriate but plenty of them in 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 certain environments and uh they got to flex with the seasons and reproduce year on year and and that's a different beast to that extreme animal that you're talking about. And, to, you know, sort of to take this, uh, ironically, I suppose, um, this these problems are being addressed pretty radically in the north at the moment. Um, there's a lot of money being spent on it, um, but it's ca- it's coming from an environmental push to um, increase, uh, to improve uh, methane intensity uh, and, yep. and yield. And so... Um, and it's sort of it's taken uh, some some external force almost to make us address the situation. So animals obviously that are running around um, yeah. not having a calf are producing methane and producing no beef. That is not a good scenario. So, no, it's not. And 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 if you have a look at some of the systems there, and and it can be in the south too, the inventory of animals that are being run relative to the turnoff, and uh, it's just 
you know, that's not a good equation from from an emissions intensity point of view. And, and you know, it ties back into things like reproduction, like a, a lever, like lamb survival is, you know, we had a detailed look at the different options farmers have to to really impact on that footprint. And and there's only a few that, that are both really um, aligned with, you know, productivity and profitability and, and really changing that emissions intensity and, you know, for example, getting a ewe pregnant with twin lambs and then she eats a heap extra, uh, but then you, you lose the lamb at birth, that's not good for the equation either. So um, things like lamb survival, speed to turn off do, you know, can, can make a difference, but it's all got to be tied into a, a balanced package. And one of the things I do spend a, a fair amount of my time is coaching farmers to set breeding objectives that, are really aligned to creating animals that are fit for their farm and their production system and fit for their market and uh, or, or multiple market avenues. And um, I don't know. I, I Market signals are an interesting thing, Tom, and I know you're focused on them and that's impacted on traits you select for, but I often see people just latch onto one, you know, you know, and it leads to sayings like weight will, weight will beat grade every day, you know, more weight in the animal. So then when you plot that out to what they select on, it's big is best, you know, as far as growth. There's a dangerous marketing term in agriculture that is used in sort of in other marketing areas and that is the customer's always right. And, yeah. and I don't think that applies so much when you're breeding livestock. Yeah. Well, they they are the ones that inject money into the value chain, but we've got to be able to, you know, create plenty of animals that then hopefully go through and meet specification. And uh, it's, you know, it's it's certainly an art, but it's one where I see the balance, you know, if we reflect on when I was a younger fella and the catch cry went out, go fine or go broke with your, with your merino fleece, your merino wool. And, you know, I led. I saw that create a heap of animals that weren't appropriate for the environment. They weren't adaptable. They dropped away in reproductive efficiency, growth rate. You know, and it didn't have to happen that way. But when you go out and say, just buy this ram because he's three or four micron finer and it's done with a single lens, or go out and buy this bull with trait leading growth rate. I mean, I was mentored years ago by John Yelland, and and him and others co-authored a paper with some economist input that I think it's said out of 50 calves sired by a, a trait leading bull like top 10% for growth I think you needed one or two dead calves and it wiped off, wiped off the whole return of using a trait leading bull for growth instead of breed average for growth if you didn't do it in a balanced way so yeah. Yeah. it's you know it's it's about um, you know you know, I know you're passionate about it as well. It's about really creating animals that thrive in that production system and then being really accountable to deploy management that enables that animal to, to thrive and survive and and out of that becomes a big win-win because you have um, lots to sell and not, sometimes lots to sell when others don't that aren't necessarily engineering the right animal or managing them in the right way. And, and the people I see in sheep and beef at the moment that are um, just absolutely killing the pig, to use a bad term, I suppose, is, uh, you know, they've done the hard work in the past few years in designing their animals and their production system, and they're flying at the moment, and they're probably buying the bloke out next door. 
So there's a pretty there's a pretty big difference at the moment, um, particularly in the last ten years in adoption adoption between beef and sheep. Um, huh. Sheep sheep have bolted. Uh, and, and I see it in the genetic ga- genetics. You know, sheep are doing you know, over five dollars a DSE genetic gain on their indexes each year, and beef are still you know floundering around two or under um, dollars a DSE. What why why is the di- what's the difference? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the other thing I like to throw into that is the fact that the system, things like breed plan and and a lot of this measurement, has been around longer in your game. So you've had more opportunity. So what, what you just outlined, you know, um, and and I, I suppose the first example I'll give of to, to validate what you're saying is Ipsos did a big review for Sam Gill at MLA and in both species they interviewed over 100, land, over 1,000 landholders combined of seed stock and commercial. So it was something like 2,200, you know, sheep and beef producers combined. And on one question... Are you aware and do it where you go online and search for your bulls or your rams? So to do that effectively, you need to have a breeding objective, have a plan, go online, have some criteria, your index, what appropriate index, and go searching for your bulls. The answer to that in the beef world was 6% of farmers are aware and do it, and it's been around since 1980. So um, that's like, you know, as far as someone that's interested in adoption. The answer in sheep is 60%. So there's a tenfold difference and it's been around for 10 or 15 less years. Why is that so? I think one of the things we did uh, was back early in the time of the sheep CRC, we did a stock take of basically what was happening with adoption and particularly in the area of genetics. And it was at that point that we really changed our tact and out of that was born the Breadwell Federal Program, which... Instead of going to talk to farmers in the sheep world about breeding values and how they're calculated and all the focus on the science, we went right away from gene jockeys talking about it and got people to talk to farmers that get production systems, get what farmers want to achieve and and sort of plattered this back. So the key is that the goals of the farmer and their game plan have to be tightly aligned. So we've spent lots of time coaching the farmer to bring their goals forward and then back back engineered that into their game plan and using the tools. So there wasn't this upfront jamming down your throat of how these things are done. It's more about <coughs> these are the tools that are there in your kit bag. What trade do you want to apply? Therefore, how can we best use the tools? I think in the beef world, and, and it was great, they wore the monkey on their back, they got these systems going, but... I'm not sure there was enough emphasis on coaching farmers to really think through what they want to achieve and and therefore effectively use the tools. And I think one of the ones that is still creating noise in the marketplace today is raw body weights on bulls. You know, Matias Suarez did research and he found that 70% of the value of a bull today at auction and a place like yours that provides all the information Across a range of sales, 70% of the value is driven by the weight of the bull on the day of the sale. We've got to get away from rewarding this this fat bull concept. And one of the things that's that's validating that still now is supplementary sheets. Well, you keep telling us to pull ours. And I know, you know, Tamanu in New Zealand have pulled theirs. They don't have a supplementary sheet anymore for this reason. All it's doing, mate, is creating confusion. So it... 70% 70% of the weight of the bull on the day of the sale is set by stuff other than genes. 
So what's the point of having that information? It, it, it doesn't even tell you about growth rate. And it's just leading to a whole lot of confusion where I bring rooms of farmers in and I say, why do you buy the heaviest bull? Well, if he's the heaviest, he must be best for growth. He's got to be a good doer. And what do you know, Tom? To be that good, a farmer that thinks about it a bit more, he says, well, he must have been born early, so his mum would be good for reproduction. So but she may not have had a calf year before. No, yeah, not, in, not in our case, but it, yeah. The that's being provided is just creating noise and confusion. And yep. we need a band of, of, of focused beef, beef producers, you know, that, that are just not providing it anymore. It's not necessary. It might be necessary for something like scrotal circumference, minimum scrotals on the day or morphology in the semen, something like that, I would accept. But you can still have a supplementary sheet to tell you which bull's withdrawn and some of these other attributes without displaying weight because I only know one ram sale in Australia that I'm aware of that still provides raw body weights, and that's a multi-vendor sale uh, in New South Wales that's probably not that progressive in providing a whole lot of other information. So most of the on-property sales, you just don't see it anymore in the sheep job. They've moved past raw body weights and... You know, it, it certainly doesn't link back to reproductive efficiency in the, you know, on your commercial farm with your sheep. That's for sure. Can I just take you one back, back one more step? You know, you you said that uh, beef, you know, had the opportunity of what was started first. Um, I, I think I believe that that actually is a bit of a problem because beef yep. was started pre pre internet, really pre farm PC in the eighties. No early eighties, no one had a PC much on farm. And um, so, there, therefore, the delivery of it was delivered through associations with the farmers or the breeders, which were breed societies. Um, yep. And we now have a culture where the beef industry is perhaps still staying in a in a in a system that was required then, but perhaps it isn't now. What do you think about yeah. that? Yeah. Look, um, I think that the freedom of the information and use of it, I yeah. I'm not sure what today, in today's environment, the breed society model adds, to be frank. I'm an educator. I'm interested in use of information. I'm interested in things like multi-breed multi EBVs. In, in sheep, we have three combined analysis. We have a maternal merino and a terminal analysis. We need a British breed, European breed, and the northern breeds. If they're not all in one, they're in three because they're probably not related enough. Three analysis. Uh, it would make it a hell of a lot easier for me as an educator to rock up not with 20% old bands but with three and and we can coach farmers through still for their breed type or type averages to go into the appropriate spot in those combined analysis without offending you. A, a high growth Angus may not be in the top 5% of that combined analysis. A high growth Angus might sit at the 30%. Yep. Let's coach the farmer to go to the appropriate spot in that we've been doing it for years in sheep and the farmers get it. Uh, they just need a little bit of adoption support and uh, it's great. And um, whether they're buying a Dorset or a White Suffolk or a South Down or whatever else in the terminals, they can line them up against each other and, and make their choices. So I, um, what I want to crystallise is I, I really respect the farmers that put their hand up and your family was one of them. Mr. Jenkins in Western Victoria with the white face was another and 
Spot Lawson and John Yellen, these these farmers, you know, they wore the monkey on their back. But I'm telling you, those that have passed away, they'd roll over in their grave to know that 60% of six percent of farmers today actually can go online and search for their bulls. And and then when we add that to the concept of this raw body weight still being the primary thing driving farmer behaviour, this is a, an awesome system that was started in the 1980s We've got to be proud of that, but we've got to evolve. And the other area I've talked to you in the past about is the extension of that information. I think if we can change how it's housed and then it needs to be broken out to people to in different groups, in different production systems, you know, with things like indexes. So they're really tailored to a circumstance. You know, I'm, uh, I'm not necessarily an advocate that the... That the the house that does the analysis, the trait-based analysis, that they need to be the same font of all knowledge as to what the right balance of genes are. I think we need to bust that right open, Tom, and free it up and, and let it happen so that people like John Young, who's a gun economist in Western Australia, if there's farmers that want to follow him or Bill Malcolm or whoever, and they're part of a group that can can really get production systems, get profitability and... and uh, you know, certainly still have a lens for the value chain. But I I think that the freedom of the use of that information, it's it's got to change. I totally agree with you, you know, that we need some way of sharing data into a, into a common pool. But it's also very important to get as much data as you can into one common pool. Um, Correct. Because so, there's huge advantages in that. Uh, ge- um, genomics. I like that. To crystallise that, I like that for the trait-based analysis. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I think there can be some tailoring of how that goes to common interest groups for maybe building indexes that are more aligned to an environmental circumstance or more aligned to a certain, you know, you might be cracking open a, a new market avenue and that particular customer has got a lot of emphasis on <coughs> on certain trait, you know. So, I don't know, it's just, just an idea that might freshen up the adoption profile uh, a bit that's existing at the moment. Yeah, so you know these uh, alternate um, approaches could be service providers that can tap into the the, the general database, use whatever's public information in their their own sort of methods or their own indexes okay. or principles. Yeah, for sure, that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. But it's not that's not necessarily where the thing is most busted. But we've we've just got to work on on look at the different ways of really you know, driving this 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 stuff forward. And uh, I think that, you know, traits like, like methane yield and so on, like we're going to have new lenses that we're looking at things, you know, from from welfare perspectives. You know, one of the great things they're doing at Cheap Genetics is busting the number of lambs wean trait down into uh, conception, litter size, and specifically um, lamb survival from as a maternal trait. And so... You know, farmers that are scanning plenty but but need to work on that conversion into live lambs might stop putting pressure on those other traits uh, that are leading to high scanning rates uh, and really focus on on the trait that counts. That's obviously it, it makes money. Uh, it certainly improves methane uh, efficiency uh, per unit of uh, emissions, and uh, it's certainly a much better look from a welfare perspective. So. What that counts for in your individual system, in your individual index, uh, depends. 
and and I think that's where we need a, some fresh lenses on things like cost of feed in different environments. We run our own custom index internally and have been for you know ten years uh, on and off a bit, but the last five years we've been pretty strict on it, um, and then we use that index uh, in mate cell to um, to do our matings. So uh, and I know all that stuff's possible, but there's not very many people doing it, and it's really really technically hard to actually get the data all pulled together now to actually make it happen. Um, yeah. and so imagine, that's sort of, Imagine if you threw into that that you're using three breeds in a combined crossbreeding program in a big commercial herd. Yeah. Complicated. Yeah. Yeah, and you're pushing out undesirable re- recessives and all sorts of things that you can do. Um, so I was just... Um, the big disruptor recently in in beef, particularly, has been genomics. Um, the pres the again the previous model, which is almost um, uh, doesn't almost function or doesn't function well now, used to rely on people putting phenotypes in. The, the supplier of the phenotype got a lot of benefit because the accuracy of those particular animals went up. Now with genomics, that accuracy can be spread over the basically over the entire herd. So um, the value proposition of collecting phenotypes in the beef system now is sort of broken because um, those who put in a lot of information like um, like we do um, tend to be building the knowledge for the rest of the herd to be able to sort of uh, impute the data out and into other relatives. Um, you are what, the reference herd. Uh, so yeah. how, how, do, how does, um, you know, we're, we've been, uh, there's been a bit of talk in the industry about valuing phenotypes so that, you know, the, the system has to buy the phenotype um, according to its um, value and scarcity and whether it has a genomic test attached um, and then selling back the result and the, the re- selling of the result would fund the purchase of the, of the, of the phenotypes. Have you um, had, had any thoughts about that? Uh, I haven't thought that deeply about that business model. That that does sound interesting in its in its own right. I suppose I I put and this is this this might offend you, but I see seed stock production as a means to an end. So I spend most of my uh, time thinking about how we can just harvest better genes because at the end of the day, you're the creators and and dispersers of that and. So I'm all thinking about that genomic opportunity and, and where you're saying people can start to cheat a bit if you've got great reference herds and plenty of phenotypes that you and others have provided. You know, we can stop drafting yearling heifers and playing God with the polypipe and we can actually start doing something more meaningful by by leaning on that exact thing you're talking about. Um, and uh, so I, I've spent less time about how the business model could hum at a seed stock level because um, I'm just coaching farmers to see you blokes as, you know, you might be a friend, you might be a colleague, but at the end of the day, they're going there to harvest genes to build their lot and lot. That's right. So, yep. Totally so, agree. Yeah, and um, I know you agree with that. And, uh, you know, I just, I don't know, uh, they're little pet subjects, but this, this concept of where so many people that I see, the next mistake, they might go and buy a, a great deck of bulls with a great selection differential over their previous crop, and then you, and then you follow through, and at two-and-a-half-year-old backing calf, when that animal's really going to contribute to genetic gain in the herd, the daughter of those better bulls, they've got less than 50% of that age group left. And 
and sometimes it's way less than that. And you say, well, how do we end up at this point? And they say, well, you know, can only join half of the heifers or two-thirds of an extreme. You know, you've got to get in there and draft off all the ordinary ones. Well, I had a go at that. <laughs> but I kept both lots and the ones I was going to sell outperformed the ones I was going to keep. Yeah, I know. And it's because it's just based on spurious information mm-hmm. like femininity, you know, length of face, length of neck range. And what I see is happening, Tom, is by the time people are obsessed with growth when they buy their bulls, and then when they go into their heifers and they pick the framiest heifers that look most feminine, they're just pushing their maturity size and maturity pattern way out. Yeah, and, and we know, uh, and we know that late maturity has a negative effect on all of life fertility. Yeah, and and this is where we're leading to issues like some of the Brahmins in the Reprenomics Project in the north not reaching puberty until they're 500 kilos. That's what happens if you play that game continually. Yeah. And you get your single trait focus. The animal will get taller later maturing and eventually you'll get it to a spot where you can split a raindrop on its back. It's that narrow. And that that doesn't link in with, with efficient beef production per hectare to cope with climatic variability. Doesn't work in sheep either. And, um, you know, we, we need kegs on legs that, that can create lots of progeny that mature and uh, she can suck it up buttercup and get in calf or get in lamb when things aren't going quite so well. And, um, you know, I, I often when I'm talking to farmers, just to change the tact, I'll relate it, relate it to our great game, you know, AFL footy. And do you want a team full of downhill skiers that get a kick when you win them by 10 goals? Or, or do you want, you know, your best halfback flanker that, that can attack when things are good, but will also, when the pressure's on, perform, you know, and um, it often gets me in the good books with probably one of the best players you can refer to in that sense when I'm in South Australia, I talk about Mark Rashuda because when he played, the more, more the pressure, the better he played, and we have the opportunity to create animals just the same. Yep. Yeah. That's, I often, um, you know, the more heifers you put in the herd, it's like uh, a good recruitment driver on a football team. Yeah, you know, it is. And, and uh, the more the heifers go in, the, the, better, the, the better the team gets. Um, yeah. And so as a consequence, you know, our policy is that um, we give every, virtually every heifer a chance. I mean, they have to be out of, what, uh, 724 last year. We didn't join about 14. Um, and of the ones that then we did join, the 710 we did join, we got 650 in calf. Those other – so we use – the conception rate itself to be the guiding the the classing tool yeah, rather yeah, yeah. rather rather than us than our own um, ideas of what we think might be a fertile and and it, because we we sort of don't know. Yeah, we don't know. How, how do you? It's just like other traits, like eating quality. You can't stand there, and none of us have got X-ray vision. We can't look under the skin to to see these things. And uh, you know, I, I say if they're mad or bad, i.e. they chase you out of the pen or extremely bad structured, like something horrendously wrong, then if they meet their minimum joining weight, like 60% of their adult size, let the bull do the classing. And, and you'll have some animals in your genotypes, which is great, as a seed stock farmer that you're finding that, that will absolutely join up at less than that level. And, you know, and that's what we're, you know, you're, you're there to test genes, but we, you know, overjoining heifers for a shorter joining period is great for finding, you know, genes that can really contribute to the herd. And 
and we need heifers to carve in the first cycle. We really do. Like again, in nineteen seventy four, there's a ripping paper written about if she doesn't car if she carves in the first cycle, you'll have positive lifetime return. If she's out the back of the second cycle into the third, you're destined for negative return on that breeding female because they take about fourteen days extra to return to estrus. So if she's carved yeah. the first time, they're busted. They can't yep. contribute to your system. But the problem I'm seeing, Tom, to round this off is that people are going in and, and playing God with the polypipe and only selecting a subset, but still 70% of them don't carve in the first cycle. So if they were picking all the big, shiny ones, you'd imagine that they'd be getting that piece right. But we, we've got to change what's happening so that we can create more animals from less. Because our theme in both our industries is we have less breeding females. Like we used to have 80 million breeding ewes in the sheep job and now we're down to low 30s. Like um, it's it's an ever-shrinking challenge. And one of the things people bang on about these rebuilds, but one of the things I've noticed in the sheep job, when the price of mutton's high, so a ewe that doesn't get in lamb, people don't keep them and run them around for another year and when it, when my dry cows are two thousand dollars to cut the head off i ain't running around for another year so it's i think it's got to come from the young animals we've really got to create better next generation animals and manage them to hit their targets and get more you know reproduction out of out of heifers and second joiners better made new performance in 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 our national merino flock and and ewe lambs in the meat flock. And, uh, you know, it comes by, you know, engineering the right female and managing them to key targets. Yeah. And look, um, you know, just at the moment, we're working out how to throw Wi-Fi over all our heifers um, So because we're putting heat time on them. We're putting heat yep. time collars on all the heifers. Uh, yeah, sure. And, and so that we can get that first, first, um, that first heat ever in their life and... Uh, get a bit better idea of maturity pattern for those reasons um because and again in our head because we do two rounds of ai the fertility data is a little bit comp or is quite compromised um so we're needing to look at other ways of collecting um, fertility data and these collars are going to be helpful and also the team is helpful because we get a lot of natural joins out of the team but yeah and and look the um that sense of technology is something we've played with on our own farm about seven, eight years ago, La Trobe University came to our farm and they asked us what was the biggest issue and we talked to them about, uh, you know, lack of maternal pedigree on commercial farms, so what lambs from what you, um, you know, being able to work towards remotely monitoring things like lambing, getting date of birth if it's important to a seed stock operation, uh, pinpointing dystochia, lameness, you know, all these sorts of things and, uh, you know, it can be done. I think it's really exciting and I think probably one of the areas that we don't do well yet is the whole understanding, the whole input-output equation and, and I know that Angus Weld has done, you know, a fair bit of work with feed efficiency but a lot of that's done in what I would regard a fairly artificial environment, you know, it's mm-hmm. not where the cow's browsing and I think the opportunity to use these sensors to get... Yep. you know, number of bites and grazing duration and as a, at least a proxy for intake. Um, you know, there's a real opportunity in that technology space and something I'm really passionate about. I actually got a call just yesterday about an opportunity in Victoria where they're looking at, you know, a, a model sort of mobile farm that can go to farms to help them collect key data at key times. 
um, you know, because this, this whole, uh, you know, real-time information is a real challenge to harvest for sure in rural, rural Australia. Well, we've decided to put heat time just on the heifers, but I'm, I know I'm going to have a bit of trouble taking them off. <laughs> just, we might start buy, buying a lot, new lot each year, but uh, um, don't tell the rest of the family that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you get an innovator running the show. They don't always make the right... Economic decision. They're just chasing more data, but uh, that's cool. <laughs> so we're getting we're we're getting to the end of our chat, and uh, before we finish off, we need to ask you. Um, so some of the 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 three M's, Jason, and um, what are the what are the three M's in your life? What are the mistakes you've made? Yeah, triple M. I um, I'll spend less time on this one because we don't want to spend too much time on on mistakes. No, actually. Certainly, um, I'll talk about a couple of personal mistakes in a moment, but it is one area that when you're coaching farmers, and I'm a farmer myself, you know, you, you do really learn from your mistakes. And, and by making mistakes in production systems, you, you learn, you know, what wasn't right and, and how not to do it the next time that circumstance comes around. And uh, so learning from mistakes is key. Probably, um, you know, and other people have other experiences, but... Going into business with family and friends is not always the best option. Um, so I've, I've made some errors in in both of those circumstances, um, but live to fight another day. Yeah, so that that would be a mistake. Righto, and uh, I suppose some people find this harder. Actually, talking about their masterpieces, what are your masterpieces? Well, I think the masterpiece at this point. I'm still working on things, but, you know, I mean, the thing that's reached the most people and had the most impact would be lifetime year management that was I was involved with a group of other people that we co-developed. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's reached uh, thousands of farmers and, and lifting the number of lambs weaned per hectare by about 20%, doing that through higher conception rates, lamb survival, lower ewe death, um, you know, so it's it's a great outcome from a productivity and profitability point of view, but it's it's coach farmers to, you know, just manage their system and these breeding females in 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 the right way and put a lot of emphasis back on 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 what really counts. And you know, I think the exciting thing with that project is it's not a fat you project. It's it really makes a difference to farms that are really trying to drive their system. And, and we were told for years that reproduction and stocking rate can't go together, you know, rules rules that were promoted by some benchmarkers, and I don't agree with that. Um, we have lots of farmers that prove that it can be done, and it's, it's about being a bit more focused in your management and all about resource allocation. What, what feed goes to what animal and why, what profits reallocated to what part of the business and why, um, so lifetime year management would probably be the, the thing that's made the most difference. I'm trying to really grow and develop my own Lambs Alive program, which is a bit more internet-based if you want to use that terminology and through Facebook and things like that. But, uh, yeah, it's not a masterpiece yet, but we're working on it. And, um, and mentors, Jason, um, you must have had many but or some very influential ones. Yeah, probably the three main ones. First of all, would be my old man. You know, he, when he sent me off to uni, he said, what we don't need is another bright spark with a whole heap of new ideas. We need someone to 
help the common farmer, the common man and woman in communities, farming communities, to adopt known information. And and probably as a young bloke at 18, I didn't think too deeply about that until I got into my fourth year project. And, and that leads into my sort of second mentor I'd mentioned in Dr. Peter Sale at La Trobe Uni. And we had a great relationship right from when I was a wild young bloke in first year and not that focused right through to uh, when I did my fourth year project with him, which went back and interviewed those original farmers that were part of the Grasslands Productivity Program. Uh, and then I did my PhD under Peter and, uh, you know, so that was awesome. And out, out of that was involved in the Triple P project and probably the third person I'd mention as a mentor is Charlie DeFagley from Ararat. And Charlie sort of, um, we kind of have very similar um, ideals, I suppose, but really challenged me early doors, which kind of linked back to what Dad was on about is, you know, your role, Jason, is to help people think through the decisions and understand the components to drive their own production system. You know, think through the reasons for the responses they're getting. You know, they don't want someone on a, on a soapbox to spoon feed them. So I suppose the combination of those three people, um, you know, passion was common, wanting to make a difference was common, based on solid science was common, and and... They're the things I'm trying to practice today to help um, landholders to to progress, and I love seeing the next generation sort of uh, grab hold of the opportunity. And so often people say age is a precursor for for adoption, and I don't agree with that. If you want the next generation to take on the baton on your farm, we'll get in and warm up that baton and show that you can make change and you're positive about the future. And then the next generation's more likely to give up their day job. And come back to your farm and your community. So, um, my old man was really innovative, but uh, you know, age is not a precursor for that at all. Dr. Jason Trump, thanks very much for coming in and talking to me today on Rorag. You're um, making a huge contribution to beef and lamb producers in Australia with um, your. Um, take no prisoners attitude a little bit i've seen you in action you um when you're when you're in front of a crowd and you get asked a question you you answer it and um we need a lot more of that in extension in australia it's very difficult to do but you've got to have a very deep understanding to be able to do the way you do it because if you start down the track of being direct in science and uh answering a question which is science-based and you 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 get to the end of your knowledge you're in all sorts of trouble and um, that doesn't happen to you so thank you very much Jason for coming in today and um, we'll catch up soon uh, thanks very much for having me if you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app